everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in dining room studios with today's guest, Zoe Lister-Jones, whom you may know from a ton of projects <laughs> and a ton of projects that are coming up. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Um, so I just watched Consumed, which is your independent movie, which is, is it When's it coming out or is it already out? Uh, we're actually releasing it through this cool new platform called Gather. It's theatrical on demand. So mm-hmm. anyone across the country can go to our website, consumedthemovie.com, click on see the film and then type in their city. And there's over 100 screenings already. And so if there's a screening in your city, you can sign up. And if there's not, you can request one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's going to come out on VOD and iTunes in late March. Very cool. Yeah. Um, bleak movie <laughs> yeah. moments of of hopefulness but overall i was like uh, uh i did not feel like skipping around after watching it no it's pretty intense i mean i you know it takes place in the sort of food industrial complex it's set in the world of genetically modified food so it's a bleak subject matter and it's something that impacts all of us which is i think why it's hard mm-hmm. uh walking out of the theater or or your living room in your case <laughs> uh and not really feeling the impact of, of what this means for all of us right so you star in the movie and you also wrote produced directed not Didn't directed direct. your no. husband yeah did, my husband though. directed it right your yeah. husband who by the way i was watching uh, a trailer of Breaking Upwards, which yeah. I want to talk about later. Very cute. Thank you. Very attractive. Good work <laughs> with that one. Thank you so much. We've been together 12 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And you had an open relationship at one point, though, right? We did, which is what Breaking Upwards was uh, loosely based on. Yeah, we we met in college, and then about two years in, we opened up our relationship. And during that time, Daryl, my husband, started writing uh, a sort of fictional version of our open relationship and then brought me the script and I was like, oh, hell no, I got to write my version. <laughs> so then we, we, we collaborated and, um, and yeah, that was our first, our first narrative feature. Okay. I was, let's come back to yeah. consumed then because I, I'm, I must pursue this relationship <laughs> stuff because this is fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, what made you decide to open up the relationship? We were really young. Uh, we, we met in college and so, I think NYU, NYU, right. yeah, Tish, and um, and so I think it was just one of those things where we knew it was kind of forever, but it was scary to mm-hmm. commit at such a young age. And I had just started acting professionally, and so I was always surrounded by all these cute boys, and it was just difficult. So we decided to open it up. At first, it was really a big a big part of it was just codependence and how to navigate that mm-hmm. in a relationship. And so we split up our our weeks. So we were half of the week on as boyfriend, girlfriend and half off. And so every like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we would see each other. And then the rest of the week, we wouldn't. And and so we... And you would date other people um, in the off time? At first, we weren't doing that. We were just doing it to try and establish independence because otherwise it was too difficult. Did you both identify as codependent i know you did a one-woman show about codependence yeah. too right yeah, so yeah. i mean do, are you like al-anon super codependent uh, person? I, you know i'm not in al-anon i've read some some of that material i think i've always struggled though with codependence mm-hmm. yeah and and in relationships especially 
And I think, you know, whether or not you would identify as codependent, I think it's just a, a something that I think everyone struggles with and a lot of people struggle with in relationships. Definitely. Which is, you know, how to stake your own independence while still being intimate with your partner and all of that stuff. And I think it's easy to get into these habits of when you're living separately, which we were like spending every night together Mm -hmm. and never seeing your friends and all of those things where we thought, well, if we rigorously like set out the days where we don't see each other, then we're going to be forced to really explore ourselves and our own social circles and all of that. And then the other people uh, conversation happened a little later. (laughs) Yeah. I just recently I was thinking, that since meeting the man who is now my husband, I do feel like I've pulled away from my friends mm-hmm. and I miss them and I don't think that's good. And I sort of had this moment of like, how did I get to this spot Yeah, where my whole life kind of, but I mean, I'm also a homebody, but my whole life, I don't, I don't feel like I'm too dependent on it. It's different. Cause I definitely, I definitely was codependent when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I had a ton of, of unhealthy relationships, but I do feel like I've, I've, kind of pulled pulled away from so much of the stuff that I was connected with before. Yeah, yeah. I, I think everyone kind of falls into that trap. I think it's really easy to. And I think also just you know, as you grow up, like, you know, it's it when when your social circle stops being like institutionalized, like right. in college, and yes. all those things, then you really have to seek out those relationships. And I think as we grow up, it, it takes much more energy to mm-hmm. seek those out and, and to make your old historical relationships and friendships really survive. Right. So how did that work? Both when you scheduled which days you were going to be together, um, and then also when you opened it up, how did that, how was that? Uh, when we opened it up, it was interesting because I think neither of us thought the other person was dating anyone. <laughs> we were like, aha, I'm off dating people and you're a loser. And then, <laughs> and then I found like, which we sort of loosely interpreted in the film too. I found like an earring and I fa- started to f- find these little tokens of mm. other women in his life that just tore me apart. And so I think at first I thought I was super cool about it. And then I realized that it was like devastating to me. So uh, I opened, it was my idea to open up the relationship and then it was also my idea to close it. <laughs> how, and how much, how, how much time elapsed when it was open? A, a year. Yeah. But you know, we were, younger and we also weren't living together Mm -hmm. and so there were all of these other elements that made that possible uh but yeah and 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 i think it was definitely a huge learning experience for both of us Mm -hmm. did any of the stuff that happened in that year keep coming up afterwards totally totally yeah i think well i think for men especially an open relationship is uh easier (laughs) because yes i agree yeah because i think men not as a rule but generally speaking have an easier time separating sex from emotions and Mm -hmm. i think for women it's much more complicated uh a lot of the time so so i think that to have like a relationship that you're prioritizing emotionally while having little flings is something that he actually was like oh this is awesome (laughs) and for me I was like this is so confusing like I want to date too many people and Mm -hmm. like this and my heart is being broken by (laughs) by all of this casual sex so um not that much guys but you know some so (laughs) just buttloads of casual sex is what I'm hearing no yeah yeah (laughs) 
I buttloads next to sex also <laughs> like is a visual that I'm not trying right, to put it's out problematic. there. Problematic. Um, but yeah, yeah. So so definitely it brought up emotions that we then had to navigate for years later. Have you ever? Do you feel like you've ever successfully separated sex from emotion? Because that it's funny. I was just commenting on that topic with someone I was saying that I spent years thinking I could if you know trying to do that and I can't I just can't I just never could I would end up sleeping with someone that I wasn't interested in and then the next morning all of a sudden I was (laughs) in love yes yeah I needed them to still want to be with me totally totally I think that's what it's about right it's just about the validation wanting to be loved yes yeah and I, I think, well, I think the only times that I was ever able to really separate sex from emotion is when I didn't like the guy. But again, like the second, or if a guy was like too into me, mm-hmm. but then like the second that guy would pull away, I'd be like, but wait, <laughs> you know, like, like clearly just terribly insecure, uh, have self, self-worth issues. But I think a lot of women do mm-hmm. base self-worth on, on male attention, sadly. So that's a, a struggle. Yeah. What was your childhood like your you grew up in brooklyn right i grew up in brooklyn yeah my uh, my parents are both visual artists Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah i i think i was always so i was always exposed to a lot of art uh but i never really wanted to be an artist i think i was really i saw uh, how difficult it was for my parents they didn't have a lot of money and they i think i saw how much of their own work was sacrificed because they had to take other jobs. Mm-hmm. And so for me... What, what kind of other jobs would they take? Uh, my mom's been a professor at Rutgers University for 25 years. She teaches video art, which mm-hmm. is what she does. But, you know, again, that takes so much of her energy that then her work, I think, beca- you know, really got put on the back burner. My dad, um, he was doing a lot of uh, work in, in editorial and magazines and stuff like that. But, you know, jumping around. I think... Like, like illustrating stuff? No. Um, he was like an editor at oh, like, art magazines okay. and stuff he he uh, is a conceptual photographer but i just i think i saw how painful it was mm-hmm. to to you know be an artist and not have that recognized in the way that you had hoped and and to struggle financially and what it meant to raise a family like that and so i had a much more i had a less romanticized vision of of what the artist's life was than i think people who probably weren't raised right. like that raised so stockbrokers yeah yeah <laughs> i had the opposite so like most people who are like raised by stockbrokers who would be like i want to be an actress their parents would be like no be a lawyer mm-hmm. i my i got into tish on a scholarship and i was like I think I want to be something that's like more stable, like a mm. doctor or a lawyer. My mom was like, no, be an artist. <laughs> so she pushed me to, to follow that. I mean, it was she didn't that- want you to be a disgrace to the family, like being a doctor <laughs> or a lawyer. Know. I know. I, I was, yeah, I think, I think uh, I was nervous about, I really, I was, ner- I was nervous about financial stability. Mm-hmm. I mean, as superficial as that is, I really just wanted a stable life. It honestly doesn't sound superficial. It sounds very weighty for a, young person to be worried about that yeah yeah i was an i was an old soul i was an you know an only child so i think i was like raised and and like brooklyn in the 80s wasn't like the best (laughs) yeah where in brooklyn uh it was south park slope park slope is pretty tony but Mm -hmm. we were in a um like more of the sunset park area for you brooklyn people out there so it it, yeah it was um a little scary Mm -hmm. (laughs) Being an only child, um, were you lonely? Uh, 
I don't know if I was only, I have two half sisters. Uh, they live in Canada. One of them came and lived with us for a year. So I got a little taste of, of sibling rivalry, but I, I don't think I was lonely. I don't, I had nothing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. I, I think now that I see like my husband has a sister and all of my friends who have siblings, I'm like, Oh, that might've been nice. <laughs> I think, you know, I was also a child of divorce. So, so I think the idea of kind of handling those really difficult moments as a child might have been easier if I had a sibling to right. hang on to. How old were you when they split up? They split up when I was nine. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, what it was, was pretty, it like? It was pretty uh, traumatic. Yeah. I think it, it was, I mean, they fought a lot when they were together. Mm-hmm. So that was traumatic too. So I think I understood it. But um, I had a lot of, <laughs> before I get into my codependence issues, I had a, <laughs> I, I had a lot of fear over my dad like surviving without my mom Mm -hmm. so i i um said that i wanted to spend every other night with him which is really a lot to go back and forth between two houses but i like kind of put that on myself as my responsibility to make sure he was okay so i think that was like uh, really hard for a nine-year-old to have to go back and forth that much and um and and you know, he was struggling financially. And so there were a lot of like economic issues that I think we were, we were faced with, you know, once they split up. Your fear that he couldn't survive without your mom, was she the, the one who wanted the split or was that your sense of it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think, I think I've always had this weird, I don't, I have like so much empathy for men. (laughs) And I don't know what that is, but like if I ever see like a man eating alone at a restaurant, I like want to start crying. But like a woman eating alone, I'm like, you go, girl, you go and get yours, live your life. But a man, I'm like, oh, he must be devastated. That's so interesting. And you think that goes back to your feelings about your dad? Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. Like, I I don't know what that is. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't delved into that enough in therapy (laughs) have there been times when you've like tried to reach out to men and they're like i'm fine uh no no but i do think i have like a real thing with men where i i I really feel like i need to make them feel safe Mm -hmm. all the time you know even in small ways but it's like that's that's something that i think i see myself doing right yeah so when when you first met um your husband was that stuff at play? You know, less so. <laughs> Sadly, sorry for my husband. No, I think that's healthier. Yeah, probably. Probably. You know, it was confusing, I think, because I also had a real um, history. I mean, even though I was young, I had a history of seeking affection from unavailable men. So my my now husband at the time was very available to me, and he's an incredibly like sensitive and open-hearted man. Mm-hmm. So I think that, threw me for a loop i was like what is that like i don't know (laughs) if i want that gross i'm gonna have to date a lot of other people at the same time totally exactly i was like you have to make me work for it and like torture me and make me feel terrible (laughs) about myself isn't that how this goes so i think like it's been it was very healthy for me to meet him because i had to force myself to really understand how to accept love i guess Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um did you read whitney cummings wrote about codependence in lenny Uh, i I saw that i i haven't read it uh she's a good friend of mine and she she's you know 
very well spoken on, on mm. that subject. She, uh, I just read it a little while ago, and she says that a therapist said to her, because she's so codependent, when you walk into a room full of people, the ones who are broken just glow. I was like, yes, <laughs> totally. I know, I totally get that. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah, that's genius. Um. Okay, so... You thought you wanted to head towards something more stable. Mm -hmm. You got into Tisch, which Mm -hmm. is an art school, Mm -hmm. or the School of the Arts at NYU. Yeah, the theater school. Um, So then is that the point at which you decided you were going to become, or you're going to head in the more artistic direction, or how did that all work? I mean, I was always really involved in the arts. I think the idea of going to a conservatory, meaning I didn't get to take other classes, really, like that Mm -hmm. I was going to be super focused on just theater training scared me. I wanted to have options. Is that how it is at Tisch? Like, is there, do you not do any general ed? Not really. You do a little bit, but you're really like in studio training Mm -hmm. uh, all the time. So I think that freaked me out. And I, I really enjoyed writing not a stable profession either but that was another thing that I was like should I be going more in that direction Mm -hmm. I think I I just was a little confused but I was acting in high school so it wasn't like like I wasn't involved in the arts acting in high school plays or professionally Uh, high school plays Mm -hmm. yeah not professionally so yeah and and I think my mom was just like that's such an amazing opportunity and you had a scholarship you should just go uh, do that and and go mom because it worked out Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you went to Tisch and then did you, I know you studied in London as well. Was that right after? That was during, actually. Oh. Yeah, Tish has a program with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So I spent a semester there. How was that? It was awesome. I bet. Yeah, yeah. it was so fun. I had a blast in London. It, it was cool. and, and Shakespeare training is is really great to, to have that sort of classical training in in the belly of the beast. But um, yeah, London was was just so fun. And that was my the, my senior year, mm-hmm. and then yeah, and then I graduated, and then. Uh, my senior year, I went through a bad breakup and I wrote a one woman show called that. Yeah. Codis- Codependence is a four letter word. And I played, uh, 12 different characters, all who were going through sort of struggles with codependence and relationships. Uh, and, and so I put that up myself at this cool off off Broadway theater in New York and uh, lucked out and got like a, a New York Times uh, critics pick. That's so it awesome. Was so cool. Yeah. So so that was great. And and what was really cool is I did an industry showcase at NYU, which mm-hmm. just means like agents and managers come and see you do see all the students, you know, students who are chosen do uh, one scene. And so I got a lot of calls from that, which was great. But uh, a big issue for my friends who also got calls was that they were like, well, let us know when we can see you in something. So it just worked out that my one-woman show was like a week later. Mm-hmm. So all of them that could then come see me in that, which which was really helpful in terms of getting my start. Did you know the New York Times reporter was going to be in the audience? Did you know which night? Uh, I didn't. I didn't. know. It was... Um, no, I didn't. And it wasn't like, it didn't get like a full review. It was just like put in like, it's the little like weekly, like mm. these are the things we like. Still though. So it was, uh, yeah, but it was so awesome. It yeah. was amazing. So what was, what was it like? The one woman show? Uh, I, it was, um, yeah, I played, I just played like 12 characters. I played a a little girl. I played a a Cuban man, a Cuban gay man. I played a deaf vagina. (laughs) A deaf vagina? Yeah. How? Whoa. Uh, Yeah. And how? How? Or like what indicated, what indicated to the audience that you are now looking at a deaf vagina? (laughs) I had like a pink, uh, like sheet that I like Mm -hmm. held around my head. Um, 
and I and I introduced myself as oh, okay. as a, someone's deaf vagina. Well, was it, the person deaf or just yeah? The, the person okay. was deaf, yeah, and so her vagina, which may not always be true, uh, but I, it was because my high school, my junior high school gym teacher, I shaved my head in, in seventh grade, and I wore like pretty wild clothes i wore like a lot of like polyester 70s like menswear mm-hmm. <laughs> and i and i started going to a private school it, in brooklyn like seventh and eighth grade there was kind of it wasn't great for public schools so my mom like bit the bullet and put me in a private school and went into debt and i went for two years and i got just like totally bullied because i i didn't really realize when i was dressing like that and shaved my head that i would um draw that that sort of attention i just thought it was cool and uh-huh. i was like oh god and my gym teacher in front of the whole class asked me if I got dressed in the dark. And it was really humiliating. I mean, that was just like one of many humiliating events of those years. But so I played him. He was one of my characters. And then his wife, my the real guy's wife was deaf. Mm-hmm. So then I played his wife's vagina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. And, and I also... Uh, recorded an album of covers of like that were oh, that's right you were in a band or are in a band i was yeah mm-hmm. but this was just like a solo thing that so in between every character one of my songs would come on and they were all kind of love songs around codependence that that were like pop and rap songs mm-hmm. that i turned into ballads that's really cool <laughs> yeah. when you shaved your head um i'm like that's fascinating that you were so young when you did that cause yeah it's such a uh I mean, when Britney Spears did it, she got a lot of attention. People felt <laughs> it was a real did. statement. She Same did. Point. She did. Um, what inspired you to do that? You know, I had I had a lot of older friends. Uh, and I think also because I was an only child and my parents were in the art world, I was always exposed to pretty like hip people and like people who are doing kind of wild things. And so uh, that was part of it. I think also there was like a part of me, I, I like saw I like watched reality bites and mm-hmm. I thought Winona Ryder looked so cool with that pixie cut and so I had like this Japanese hairdresser it wasn't even shaved he like uh cut it with a pair of scissors but it was all very thin and then I had these wispy 90s like ska root girl bangs <laughs> uh but yeah so that, that was kind of the inspiration and then I I got a lot of shit for it but I also got I you know the older kids really thought I was cool mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, speaking of shaving, I want to talk to you guys about Harry's.com. What kind of a facial hair does your husband have currently? Does he have any? It's shaved. It's shaved clean. Well, (laughs) then Harry's.com would be a perfect gift for him because it's an awesome shave kit. So before Harry's.com was even a sponsor on my show, I had bought um, a Harry's.com shave kit, which is a razor, the handle, the blades, um, shaving uh, cream for my husband and my brother-in-law and then they came on the show and I'm like that's awesome because I'm already familiar with them <laughs> uh, shopping for the man in your life or any of the men in your life around the holidays is stressful time consuming and super frustrating if you're like me who is oh I just overthink gift giving but that's Harry's makes it so easy uh, this holiday season Harry's has something for every guy on your list whether it's a secret Santa gift for your office colleague or the loved one who's seemingly impossible to shop for and uh, and um, 
As a special offer for my listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase so you can impress for less when you go to harrys.com and enter the promo code Allison. Harry sent us a limited edition holiday shaving set that comes with a copper-plated razor handle, a couple of five-blade cartridges, shaving cream that smells and feels great, and a cool travel kit to hold everything. Harry's has holiday shaving sets at all different price points, starting at $15. So finding the perfect gift from Harry's could not be easier. Go to harrys.com right now as a special offer for for my fans, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the code Allison. Don't wait. Economy shipping for the holidays ends on December 18th, so act now. That's Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. I know you might be thinking it's spelled a different way, but it's not. It's like Harry's like the man's name. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code Allison. Make every morning he shaves feel like a holiday. Um, okay, so I know that you're in confirmation which is about uh-huh. anita hill Clarence yeah. thomas trial have you shot have you already have, yeah yeah you, we shot it this summer. you already did okay yeah. um that sounds really exciting and you um replaced kobe smolders when she broke her leg and i was just yes. wondering what is that the experience like of getting an awesome opportunity because of someone else's acts misfor- <laughs> misfortune <laughs> um well you know it, it it was an interesting thing that happened i um I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this. Well, who cares? Um, I, 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 <laughs> I was, <love> that. <laughs> I, I was offered the part actually. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I am in this show now called life in pieces on CBS and it conflict. The movie had just one date that conflicted with my TV show. And I was so heartbroken because it's a, it's a movie that is just so special and, um, and the subject matter that I really am, am super passionate about. So I was really heartbroken and they moved on and they offered it to Kobe Smulders, who's an incredible uh, woman and actress. And then, uh, so I, I was like really in mourning mm-hmm. over it. And then she uh, just like broke her leg, sadly. And then I got a call from the producer saying, we're going to try and make it work with your dates. And it was like, it, it was one of those uh, amazing serendipitous moments because it was something that, you know, as an actor, there's constantly projects that don't work out. But this was one that, that I was really just so grieving over, mm-hmm. over not being able to be a part of it. So it was really, really special. Yeah. When does that come out? It comes out in the spring, I think in uh, April. And who do you play again? I play uh, Joe Biden's... Um, like legal counsel in the film. So Joe Biden, which is strange now who who Joe Biden's become, but at the time he was the um, head of the committee that was uh, in charge of that confirmation Mm -hmm. hearing and, and then the subsequent uh, interrogation of Anita Hill. Do you remember when that was all going on? You were pretty young then. I was young, but I, I think the reason why it was something that I really wanted to be a part of is it, it was seared into my mind. My, my mom, is a, a really big feminist and uh and she raised me to be a pretty staunch feminist but i remember when those when when the confirmation hearings were happening and anita hill was being questioned that there was like a big event like my mom and her friends were all we were all watching and i remember watching it and being freaked out being like a kid hearing about like a pubic hair on a coke can or yes. all these things like that. that's the one that yeah, and really I think that's the one that out. everyone kind of remembers. Right. They're like, I'm not sure what that was about, but I remember <laughs> there being a pubic hair and a Coke can. <laughs> uh, but but I do remember that. And it, and it really was the the first time that sexual harassment became a part of the public discourse in such a major way. And, yeah. And she's such a heroine uh, and, and I think has not been given her due. And so I think this is going to be an incredible moment. Mm-hmm. 
What is she doing now? Do you know? She's a professor, a law professor. So let's go back to consumed. Yeah. Um, were GMOs something that had been on your mind before you got involved in the project? Well, like seven years ago, Daryl and I read an article on GMOs. So before that, we had no idea what they were. Uh, and and that kind of opened up this Pandora's box of, of, of discovery. Mm-hmm. And so that we then started this this sort of journey of research around the subject matter. But when we read this article, it was like it had all these noir elements to it. You know, the, these biotech companies sort of bullying small farmers and s- hiring these ex-Pinkerton cops to spy on them. And um, and then sort of just the pervasive nature of, of GMOs being in like everything we eat mm-hmm. and no one really knowing about it because they're not labeled as they are in 64 countries around the world. So it felt like this really important issue that so many people were in the dark about. Uh, And rather than make a documentary about it, we thought it would be um, amazing to make the first narrative feature so that we could have a broader reach and entertain people while sparking a larger conversation. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I was reading the, I'm going to just say press materials, but I feel like there's another name for what I was reading. Um, But you guys brought up the sort of interesting facet of this, an interesting facet of this, which is... um, I guess, I don't know who it is. Certain scientists are saying that genetically modified foods are substantially the same Mm -hmm. chemically as the not genetically Mm -hmm. modified foods. So then that raises the question, well, how can they hold a patent on it then? Which I also, (laughs) I never thought of that, but yeah, how can they? Yeah, it's pretty confusing. Basically, the FDA doesn't do safety testing for genetically modified foods because of this sort of regulatory loophole called substantial equivalence, which means, yeah, like if basically it has the basic characteristics of its non-GM counterpart. But a lot of scientists around the world feel that way more safety testing needs to be done and that the corporations that are profiting from the sale of these seeds and their chemicals should not be the ones overseeing the safety testing, that there's an inherent conflict of interest. In terms of the patent, yeah, like a a patent is for something that's new and novel. So if it's, it's, you know, if it's the same as its non-GM counterpart, then why is it? Mm. How do do you, you, you're kind of having your cake and eating it too, which I think is a contradiction that should be talked about more. Do you, um, do you feel, personally, do do you feel as if you're coming down on one side or the other. I know in the you know synopsis and and stuff that I was reading, you guys were making the point that like the it's just we we don't know. There you can't mm-hmm. prove they're dangerous and you can't prove that they aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I think personally I've I've come to some conclusions. I think in the film we were really careful to try and uh, outline both sides of the argument and be as fair as possible. I think the thing that's kind of like impossible not to argue is for labeling like mm-hmm. i i don't know how anyone says we shouldn't have labels of gmos they're an 80 percent of processed food in this country and just like all the other nutritional facts that are on our labels you know if these are new and novel proteins as they've been patented to be then we should just have a little like heads up that they're in something especially when they're in so much um and a lot a lot of that is around i think the the pro-gmo lobby 
says that labels would increase food prices and that's been proven false Mm -hmm. you know i mean manufacturers are changing their food labels all the time for the super bowl or or cartoons or whatever so i think it's i think that the demand for labeling is something that is just unquestionable in terms of the safety yeah it's hard because because the seeds are patented it's hard for independent researchers to have access to them Mm -hmm. to do the safety testing and i I think also because um, a lot of scientists now, and we deal with this in the movie a little bit, are struggling with who who's financing them. Yes. That, you know, corporations have a lot of money. And so to be funded by those corporations to do research, I totally understand would be something that... that um, would be appealing to an independent mm. researcher. So it's a really difficult and complicated situation. I have empathy for, for people, you know, on both sides. I just think, I think it's scary what's happening to our food supply. And I think more than anything, it's, it's really scary what's happening to our environment. Mm. And the, the connection between GMOs and climate change is very real. And, and it's just about sort of industrial agriculture as a whole, like factory farms are such right. a big part of of contributing to greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I tend personally, and I'm sure people will let me know why I'm wrong. I tend <laughs> personally to not be afraid of eating genetically modified organisms, like on the level of corn or something. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's no, ar- you cannot argue against the fact that the way that Monsanto and these giant corporations behave is like so much in capitalism, despicable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, yeah, like the safety is, is disputable, but I think um, in terms of the chemical components, like the biotech companies that are producing uh, GM seeds now are chemical. They were originally chemical companies Mm -hmm. that sort of rebranded as life science companies. Right. Because they wasn't, did initially don't the roots go back to trying to come up with a corn that was, um, uh, wouldn't be killed off with with herbicide or the with soy. Yeah, soy and cotton is, okay. is resistant to the herbicide. So right. basically, GM soy is part and parcel with a chemical package. So it creates this system of agriculture where farmers are super dependent on chemicals. And because the soy, which in this country over ninety percent of soy is genetically modified, because it's resistant to the herbicide, it means that you can spray way more mm-hmm. on the herbicide uh, on on the crops in order to kill weeds without killing the crops themselves. So I think it was really appealing to farmers at first because it was an easy way to have really clean fields and still have, you know, robust crops. I think now what's happened is the ecosystem has adjusted and mm-hmm. super weeds and super bugs are sprouting up all over this country. Right. And so even harsher chemicals have to be sprayed. And since GMOs were introduced onto the market, um, the use of chemical herbicides in this country have increased by over 500 million percent. And so it's, I think it's really scary for the environment. And I think drift, especially in rural communities where our movie takes place is super real. So Mm -hmm. the idea of just how many chemicals are in our atmosphere because of the advent of GMOs is, is scary. And um, there's a really cool, organization called the uh, Environmental Working Group that did this study that showed that over a thousand elementary schools, sorry, over 3,200 elementary schools are within a thousand feet or under of GM fields. So, you know, that that's really toxic chemicals being very close to our children, which I think is a big issue. Mm-hmm. I, I watched, or I actually reviewed um, a documentary years ago 
that was about all of this. Um, and I'm just wondering, did you watch a ton of documentaries about all this? Yeah, we did. And I want to say, I don't know if we like made this clear. This isn't a documentary. Right. Yes. It's, it's a narr- first narrative. Yeah, it's a narrative. So it's a thriller. Stuff. Yeah. It's, um, but we did watch documentaries. Uh, there haven't been that many. We watched uh, a few. Um, but I think, I think there's so many layers to this issue, mm-hmm. like that I think it's hard to kind of crack the nut without kind of overwhelming people with information. But yeah, we read, we read a lot of books. We read a lot of, doc- we watched a lot of documentaries. We read a lot of articles uh, and they just keep happening. Like new articles surface every day. Yeah. So the research just continues. I mean, I almost think the most chilling part, I've, I, I don't think I'm giving away anything by saying <laughs> this. It has to do with what happens at, at the when the credits are rolling. Uh-huh. So yeah. it's okay for me to yeah. talk about that, right? Yeah. The most chilling part, I think, are the clips during the credits, which are real interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you have like Katie Couric, mm-hmm. and I'm forgetting now all the different newscasters, but just little bits of interviews with people talking about genetically uh, or talking about GMOs. And it's 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 really interesting the way in which as a viewer, you sort of receive that after watching the movie. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad that was effective. Yeah. Yeah. It feels more sinister. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this film, we tried to harken back to like classic political thrillers of the seventies that weren't afraid to put real world politics at the forefront while still entertaining. Like we didn't want to water down the issues. And then there were also films like Aaron Brockovich and Silkwood and and these films that dealt a lot with chemical pollution and had these amazing female protagonists. But I think where this film differs is you can't really walk away as a viewer and say, well, I'm not in one of those rural Mm -hmm. communities next to a chemical plant. Like you walk away and you go, okay, well, I'm, this is impacting me. And do I have to question what I'm eating? Do I need to feel paranoid? And I think, you know, do I need to worry about my children? And, and I think there are a lot, uh, and we didn't really deal with this in the statistics, statistics at the end, but the CDC showed that um, food-related allergies in children have risen by over 50% since the advent of GMOs. And again, correlation doesn't prove causality. Like, you can't prove any of these mm-hmm. things, but they're just interesting to note. Like, without the proper safety testing, it's really hard to link why we're all getting sicker, but it but we are getting sicker. Right. Did you... How did you guys figure out how villainous to make the villains? In the movie? <laughs> <laughs> we were v- Victor Garber, who's an amazing actor, uh, plays the the fictional CEO of the biotech company, and we tried to be careful not to villainize him. We tried to give him as much humanity as possible. He be- and he and you did with him. He was yeah. humanized. Yeah, there, his yeah. La- his lackey is <laughs> is a little a little more um, sinister. You know, I think I think. We definitely didn't want to make it totally black and white. Uh, and, and we worked really hard to do that. And I think what Victor's character is constantly talking about is this idea of GMOs saving the world and feeding the world, which is a very real argument on pro, the pro-GMO sort of um, GMO proponents uh, side. So, so we wanted to include that. I think, you know, in doing our own research, just as people, we learned that there's actually enough food to feed the world. Mm -hmm. It's more about um, delivery systems and access. And so I think that that outside of GMOs, there's actually way more effective ways to feed the world. And part of that is through sustainable agriculture, Mm -hmm. not these huge cash crops and monocultures that are are really doing um, harm to our environment rather than helping it. Mm -hmm. And now a... uh a very specific question about movies, movie making. (laughs) 
there's a scene with, um, I don't know if it's a mouse or a rat, and the mouse Uh or rat is very itchy. Yes. Was that mouse or rat trained to itch itself, or did you just wait till it started doing that? Uh, It was a rat. We had a a rat wrangler, and we had the, uh, what is it called? I'm drawing a blank. Like the animal... ASPCA? Like the nice animal people who make sure that no animals are harmed. (laughs) I think it's ASPCA or Humane Society. Yeah, maybe like the Humane Society. We had everyone on set because, you know, we were obviously very conscious of that. Um, We cut a little bit of the rat's hair so that it would itch where it was missing hair. Oh, you shaved a rat. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, yeah, and and so... um, it was a little itchy. It was actually itchy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, rat. <laughs> um, was that, have you worked with a lot of animals on a set before? No, no. Uh, on like TV shows, there I've, I've actually, there, there have been quite a few animals, but they're always with animal wranglers. Like animals on indie movies are such a different thing because <laughs> you don't really have like the entourage that comes with the animals. You kind of have to like deal with it yourself. Uh, but I didn't know there's usually, I mean, that makes sense, but I didn't know there usually is an animal entourage. Oh yeah. Huge. Like way bigger than like celebrities entourages. <laughs> there's, we, on this on life and pieces which i'm shooting now we had a skunk Mm -hmm. and we had like skunk wranglers there were like three (laughs) of them and it was so cute but they you know train the skunk they know how to make the skunk do things and all of of that but yeah on this we didn't have any proper rat wranglers (laughs) (laughs) uh but we did have chickens i mean we were working with you had goats right yeah yeah we were working with real farms and real farmers which was cool so that the the wranglers were the farmers themselves who who had relationships with those animals which made it a lot easier but um it was really cool to be working with with the farmers themselves because that's so much of what this movie is about Mm -hmm. who suggested trimming the rat's hair like who knew that this (laughs) i know i know how we're gonna get around this one i don't know i don't remember (laughs) i think i blacked out for that part (laughs) yeah um i was gonna ask and i am going to ask what was it like working with your husband on this like how do you as in a professional way how do you guys work together um I know that we sort of got into some of that earlier yeah. since we, you guys have done other stuff together, mm-hmm. but what's that like? We, well, I think it shifts in different stages of production. Like the writing process, I would say is the most difficult. I think he would agree with me because it's such a subjective process. And I think having your guard down, like being married to someone just allows you to be like that much nastier, <laughs> sadly. Uh, but you mean uh, like to just say like i this is yeah. not good yeah not to just working. be like rude or cutting or yeah. you know all to not to, to not be as sensitive as as humanly possible but i've talked to other writing partners who are not married and not in uh you know romantic relationships and they are equally as cutting so i think that just the process of writing together is is really difficult um once we got once we get to pre-production and, and production i think we're a pretty um, great pair. We're both super type A <laughs> and we both are really motivated and, and uh, task oriented. So that always works with indie filmmaking because you really have to just go at it like mm. full steam ahead for months and months and months. If you had had um, a bigger budget, do you feel like the movie would have been a lot different? No, I think production would have been easier. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Breaking Upwards, we made for $15,000, which in the world of movie making is nothing, very, yeah. very small. 
And then Lola Versus was our second film, which we made with Fox Searchlight. So it was, we were working with a studio. It was like going from a micro budget to a $5 million budget, which is also not much really in, in, you know, the world of movie making. But for us, it was like jackpot. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we had trailers and all of these, you know, this infrastructure that allowed us to, to have an easier time in a lot of ways, um, as producers, but I think that adds other complications. Like then you creatively, you have way more people to answer to. Right. And, and who have to weigh in on, on creative decisions. So I think, uh, those were two super polar opposite sides of the filmmaking spectrum and, and consumed somewhere in the middle. What was Lola versus about? It was like breaking upwards was the story of our open relationship, as I said. And then, uh, Lola versus was kind of the story of, Initially, it was a story of what it was to be a single woman approaching 30 in, in New York, kind of based on my my experience during the year that we were in an open relationship. We then shifted it so that um, the the main character, who's played by Greta Gerwig, is left two weeks before her wedding. And so in the year that she's approaching 30, kind of has to figure out uh, who, sh- who she is outside of her relationship and just casual sex and all of the things that we were talking about mm. before. <laughs> How do you personally react to having a lot of um, a lot of people weighing in on the creative part of it? Like, are you open to that or do you have a sort of knee jerk resistance? I think both of us are pretty open. It's a it's been a learning experience. You know, I think that that's part of growing up as an artist is knowing which is really difficult knowing when to stand up for your own vision or your gut instinct on a creative decision and when to be open to other people's uh, suggestions. Because I think it's, it's really hard to know you lose perspective. You're so inside of it. Uh, And so I think being open to, to other people's ideas is really helpful and healthy, but at a certain point you also want to make sure that you're staying true to your vision. So I think we faced a lot of those challenges when we started working with a studio for the first time. And, um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have the, the answers yet. Um, let's take some questions that people sent in over Twitter. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay. Tim, a reader, says, for Delocated, did you know your character's arc season to season? So uh, Delocated, should we tell, should I tell people what Delocated yes. is? Delocated was a series on Adult Swim uh, created by John Glazer who you might now know from shows like Girls and uh, Inside Amy Schumer. Uh, And he walked around with a ski mask on because he was uh, a man in the witness protection program. I played his girlfriend. I didn't know the arcs, no. And and a lot of people died on the show. (laughs) And I never (laughs) never knew who was going to die. I didn't even know when I was going to die. And I did die eventually. Uh, Like how soon before you died, your character died, did you find out? Uh, Just a couple months. Did you mourn? <laughs> yeah, I was upset. I was like mad. I like went through the process of being like, I don't want to die. You know, <laughs> I'm ready? Yeah, did I you wasn't reach ready. acceptance finally? Uh, yeah, yeah I, just recently. <laughs> yeah. David Cazares says, if you could change one thing about you, what would it be? Oh God, just one. <laughs> one thing I would say, uh, like my tendency to criticize <laughs> both myself and others. But I think I think my like my highly critical nature 
of others is because I'm ultimately just super critical of myself. Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be the thing I would change. How does the, the criticism come out? Is it like offhand cutting remarks or are you just in your face critical? No, neither of those things. I'm like quietly critical and super nice to to your face, (laughs) but I'm not doing that with you. No, I, (laughs) no, I, I, you know, it doesn't, it's not really with that many people. I think, I, I think, Sadly, it's with the people that I love the most, mm-hmm. you know, my, my family, my husband, all of those people. I think the people that you uh, so easily take for granted are the people that I, I tend to be hypercritical of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, you know, with those people, I, I hold them to the same standards that I hold myself, which are too critical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Would your husband agree that you're too critical? Oh, yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> uh okay jen says top three passions top three passions uh i love music i love listening to music and discovering new music uh, my husband taught himself how to play piano and we sing like uh ballads at the piano together <laughs> so i like even though i'm not a great singer i do like to sing music too um i like to write uh both like fiction and screenplays and uh mm, i like eating delicious organic food (laughs) neptune blue says first saw you in the movie arranged was it a challenging premise to get into or not yeah, so th- in that film, I played an Orthodox Jew who was being arranged into a marriage, and it's the story of her friendship with a Muslim American woman who's also being arranged into a marriage. So, um, uh, it was interesting. I mean, I we shot in in the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. So again, we were kind of like in the belly of the beast. So as an actor, I had a lot of uh, great material to draw from and people to study. Uh, what was the question? It was it hard to get into character. For yeah, the yeah. So, so that was helpful. But I also was raised uh, Jewish. I was raised in uh, an egalitarian kind of New Agey synagogue. So it was not Orthodox, but we were next to an Orthodox synagogue. So I also grew up kind of hearing those cadences and all of that. So, so it wasn't it wasn't too hard. And lastly, Shane Street says, "Just how nice is Colin Hanks? Like Canadian level nice?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have dual citizenship. I am also partly Canadian. He is Canadian level nice. Yeah. <laughs> he might even be nicer than Canadians. He's he's one of the nicer people I've ever mm-hmm. met. Uh, where in Canada are you? Sort of are you? You were you? You were uh, born no, here. I was, born, though, right? I was born in New York. Yeah, my mom's family is from Calgary, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Do you spend a lot of time there? Yeah, I go I go pretty often because my whole family is still there, my extended family. And then she went to University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And so she has a lot of friends there. So we've, we've also spent a lot of time in BC. Mm-hmm. Do you, when did you move to LA? I moved three and a half years ago. Yeah, I did this show called Whitney with Whitney Cummings. And uh, so I moved out for that and then never left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you miss New York? No. Really? <laughs> Uh, I go back because my both my parents are still there, but but no, I I love L.A. I think uh, I've become a total convert. I I'm so sensitive to weather. To like, I feel like harsh... I'm staring at a unicorn or something. <laughs> no one ever loves L.A. on this show. Oh my god, I love L.A. And and every time I go to New York, I'm like, do you guys know what's going on? 
<laughs> across the country. Like it's sunny all the time, except for today. It's sunny all the time. It's like 70 degrees. There's valet parking. What are you guys doing here? <laughs> and there, and like the, the cultural scene in LA is, is cool. Like it's not a cultural waste. Jaw on the floor, <laughs> you know, like the art scene is cool. Mm-hmm. There's not as much theater, but there's some, you know, and you can go to New York and see theater, but I just think in terms of lifestyle, especially as a woman in her thirties, I'm vibing with it. Mm-hmm. It definitely. So I lived in New York for nine years, although I'm from here originally. Um, it, it definitely is easier. Like the life yes. is just easier out here. It yeah. is just New York. There's just so many aspects of it that are just hard. It's, I personally yeah. miss it, but you do. I do. Yes. I don't, I moved back before I really had it, got it out of my system. Yeah. Um, but the second, I mean, almost the second I got back, my life improved so much. I got a new job. I met the guy who who I'm now married to. Right. And all those things to me told me that that was the right move. Yeah. But there's still this part of me that's like, well, now how can I get my life back to New York? Really? Yeah. Do you visit during the winter? Um, we did last year and we we're going to this year too. And last year's winter made you want to live there again? <laughs> When did the really bad winter part happen? It it was that it just lasted forever, right? Because yeah. we were there in December, which is again we're going in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and I I was okay with it. You're I don't okay. mind cold. I think weather, in though. small spurts. I think th- I think it's the length of it that becomes yeah. so relentless. You know, yeah. It's funny. Growing up there, it was all I ever knew, and so I was like, New York is the greatest city in the world. I can never live anywhere else. All of like the tropes that you grew up saying right. as a native New Yorker, and then I moved here and. I think like, yeah, my eyes were open to like that life didn't have to be hard all the time. Like it didn't have to be such a struggle. And that right. was a hu- huge awakening for me. Mm-hmm. Did you have a car there? No, uh, no, no. And you're adjusting to, to driving everything and all that. Easily. Love it. Love it. Love driving. Even, and I have to drive kind of across town every day to go to, to, to Fox and I still, I love it. The car is like a beautiful little sanctuary where like you can listen to podcasts like yours or or you can like listen to great music or talk on the phone or do all these things or, like listen to a book on tape like the subway mm, you have not to like that way, wait yeah. on a platform that's either freezing or boiling hot that's like smells like pee mm-hmm. then be like shoved into a like sardine can full of just miserable people. There's like, so many stairs sometimes. So many stairs. <laughs> you know, just like going to Whole Foods is yes. like a, such an ordeal. You have to schlep all that shit up and mm-hmm, down the stairs mm-hmm. and schlep it up the, you know, 20 flights of stairs to your apartment. So yeah, so I don't mind the car because to me it, it seems like a vacation. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it definitely is easier. Definitely the shopping thing. When I, fr- I remember, yeah. and I've told this story before, when I first moved to New York, I went to the grocery store and I got the same amount of stuff I would normally get. And I'm like, well, I have, <laughs> no. I don't know how I'm going to get this home now. I mean, then they, you can pay them to deliver it, but I didn't realize that, no, the way you do it in New York is you just go often and buy what you can yeah. carry. And I still, I'm like a, a, a trauma victim that way. I still <laughs> have to like go to the supermarket like a few times a week. Cause I still just buy in little, it's mm-hmm. just like a habit, a bad yes. habit. I can't buy large quantities. Cause I'm like, what would I need to return to here? I, right. I can't take all this home. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I there's certain things that I've adjusted to buy in large quantity as quantities of like we'll buy the jumbo um toilet paper, toilet paper. and that kind of stuff. That's, but yeah. um this is is TMI, but my whole show <laughs> is TMI. For some reason I never buy a lot of tampons. 
uh-huh. every month. It's like, oh, I know what you surprise, mean. Yeah. I got to go out and get 16 tampons and totally. then I'll come back during the same because, cycle. Uh, is it because you're embarrassed when you're at the cash register? No, I don't. I don't know what it is. I honestly don't know. It's really weird. It's like if there's one thing that's incredibly predictable, it's, you know, within a few days. That. (laughs) So you'd think that I would just be buying like a, you know, until menopause worth amount of them. And yet I still just like just. I know. I know. In the hopes that it won't come. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, I actually am trying to get trying to get pregnant. But Um, I don't so maybe you won't why. need that many tampons yeah. this year. Amazon Prime is helpful. I always do feel I still I still have like shame around walking around with like tampons in the like Rite Aid. Really, you know, especially because like in LA, like you see so many work people. Mm, so like, that's true. Walking around with just like a bunch of jumbo tampons. Like, oh, hey, director <laughs> of the television show, I just did you know or whatever. Do you need to buy other items to sort of dilute the potency of them, or could yeah. you? Okay. I do, but you know what? I don't. I also don't buy toilet paper in bulk. I'm always at the like buying the four packs and then just like driving back for mm-hmm. more. I don't know. So it's generally like a twelve pack of tampons and a and four pack of toilet paper. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do remember when I lived in Brooklyn, um, buying such a big thing of toilet paper that they like made the little handle out of tape for me, you know, <laughs> and just walking home carrying it. Cause they don't That's have so a bag. They don't enough. have a bag that's big no. enough. So just walking home, carrying my giant thing of toilet paper thinking, this is kind of embarrassing. Yeah. It's not that embarrassing, but it kind of is. Cause it's, it's so like, Oh, good, she's going to be using yeah. a lot of toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay though. That's okay. Um, I want to talk to you. Well, let's, we're going to do just mirror everyone, but first I want to talk to you guys about Casper. Are you familiar with Casper? They're um, a mattress company. Oh, yes. I've seen their billboards. They're awesome. They The mattresses are latex and memory foam. Super comfortable. You'll sleep really well. But like the most novel thing about them is the way they sell them, which is just direct to consumer online. Because um, what they found is the way that most of us shop for mattresses, going to a mattress store and you know trying out the different mattresses for however many minutes doesn't really correlate to how happy you are with the mattress. You would think it would, but it mm. doesn't because it's just not long enough. Um, so they've, they're revolutionizing the mattress industry. Um, Cause the other thing about uh, the mattress industry is that there's this historically been this humongous markup, but Casper is now changing all of that and you just order it online and it arrives in a box and then they send you this, it comes with this cutting tool and you open it and then it like unfurls in your bedroom. Whoa. It's pretty magical. There's a risk-free trial and return policy. So you can try sleeping on a Casper for a hundred days. There's free delivery, painless returns. The mattresses are made in America and there's a special offer for listeners of Alison Rosen is your new best friend. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash best friend and using the promo code best friend. So again, that's www.casper.com slash best friend and use the promo code best friend terms and conditions apply. Okay, let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, this is where people tweet us things that they think or they do and they wonder, is it just me or does everyone think or do this? And then we weigh in. Jared, Jared Carlson says, I'm always... No, I'm still always concerned when pork chops I cook still have a little pink, even though I know it's safe now. 
You know, pork chops is not a thing that I have ever cooked. Me neither. Actually. I'm not like Sorry, a... Sorry, Jared. Yeah, I'm not... I do eat meat, but I'm never wanting to cook meat because <laughs> it's so messy. Interesting. I find that it's really like... Like cooking vegetables and things like that, there's not a lot of mess. But meat, there's just all sorts of grease that happens. Uh-huh. I'll make I, chicken sometimes. Yeah. Are you vegetarian? No, no. I uh, I definitely eat meat. I do... I cook meat. I was raised kosher. Oh. So I was never raised cooking pork. And it's just a habit that I just still like adhere to i just it's just weird for have you never pork. had any pork product no i started eating i i tried it this last year my husband was like oh come on like, <laughs> what is up with you and so i i tried bacon because he was like live 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 your fucking life so i did and it was delicious yeah but now you know the world health organization said it's going to cause cancer <laughs> so i got in just in the nick of time right yeah no what are the other um what are the other rules of of being kosher uh, you can't mix meat and dairy. So you can't have a cheeseburger. Mm. You can't have like a Cobb salad. You have, know? You, no, have you had these things? No. You still haven't? No. Those, they're hard for me. They're hard for me to do. That's just like one of those things where you, when you're raised thinking like that's evil. Like, right. You can't, you can't do. Do you still, I mean, is that, is your thought process that you would disappoint someone if you had a cheeseburger or to your mind is it like that's gross and bad? Yeah. I think there's something that's like off about that to me. I also, I'm gluten and dairy free. So, so the burger and the cheese, like the bun and the cheese are just out, out of the picture anyway. Right. So I just, I eat just like sad burgers on lettuce. Gotcha. Uh, how do you order a sad burger on lettuce? You say like, can I, you, can I do it without the bun? Yeah. So a lot of actually restaurants are offering that now mm-hmm. and even in and out, right? Is what's that called? Uh, I don't is know. That, I think they just say, can I get it? Though there's no, probably there's some a name. Protein style, protein, protein style. style. Yeah, protein there style. There we go. Or you can go to Sad Burger at Melrose uh, <laughs> and Gower. It's awesome. <laughs> Sad Burger. I'm, oh, open, I'm opening have. the chain. Sad Burgers. Yeah. Brian Williams says, I actually like the way fortune cookies taste. I do too. They're delicious, yeah. Yeah. Full of GMOs. Really? <laughs> Probably. True. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Demian Cordova says, I sometimes start to dream before I'm completely asleep. Yes, that happens to me all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a weird, I'm sure there's, I think there's a term for that. I think the term for that actually is, I could be wrong. I think it might be hypnagogic. Whoa. And there's a guy on my, so this show comes out Mondays and Thursdays. And there's a panel of us on the Thursday show. And one of my friends on the Thursday show is frequently referring to himself as hypnagogic. Oftentimes <laughs> because I'm hypnagogic. <laughs> <laughs> but what he's describing is lucid dreaming. Right. Which I think is different than hypnagogic. I don't know. But I do know that like last night I was falling asleep and I was thinking about stuff. And then I kept thinking that I was walking down a street and I was very aware that I'm not asleep yet, but my brain mm-hmm. thinks that I'm walking down a street. It was like, I, my brain kept returning to it. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. I think that's kind of like the delicious part of sleep when you're kind of in and out of it. Yeah. When I, I do like that. So that was sort of like a mental dream that was happening. But sometimes if I'm really tired, I feel like I'll start, I'll almost start hallucinating. Like I'll start mm-hmm. seeing the visuals that, and that's neat. Yeah. Except one time it happened while I was driving and that was terrible. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. I was in college and uh, my friend and I drove to Santa Barbara to see Blind Melon and Lenny Kravitz. Live your life. Yes. At the Santa Barbara Bowl, which is a beautiful venue. And on our way home, I remember 
driving in my shitty Honda and I saw the Michelin man, the big tire uh-huh. man, like out of my, the left rear. And I not I knew it wasn't there, but I was like, that's weird. And then I saw a handful of confetti. And then I heard, which was me hitting the speed, the speed bumps and my friend going, oh my God, did you fall asleep? And I was like, oh, and I had for a second. It's the only time that ever has ever happened to me. Um, and it scared the shit out of me and we were really lucky. I say it's the only time it ever happened to me. However, I can think <laughs> it, it is the only time it got it, that level happened, but I can think of so many times in my young going out all the time days where I would be driving and it was so late that I would like roll the window down and then roll it up and then turn the radio. Like I was doing all these tricks to try to keep yeah. myself awake. Yeah. I've Thankfully, done that. I don't find myself driving in that state anymore. It's tough. I, I find that when I'm like working really late on a set and yeah. you're just wiped, it's, it's scary to drive home. It really I is. I keep dark chocolate in my car. Does that wake you up? Yeah. Do you drink coffee? No. Not at all. <laughs> no. It's okay. You say it like I'm, you're apologizing. I am apologizing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'll let it slide this time, but next time you come back on the podcast, make sure you've changed your ways. Okay. Lane says, as a kid, I would tear the tags off my pillows, even though it was illegal. Early evidence of my problem with authority. I thought you're not supposed to remove mattress tags. Are you also not supposed to remove pillow tags? I don't know why I'm looking at you, Jeff. (laughs) I'm the arbiter of such things on this show. Yes. It's... I used to think it was illegal to take them off, but if you look at it closely, it says, do not remove under penalty of law except by user. So it's illegal for the store to take them off, but it's completely legal to take them off once you buy it and get it home. This changes everything. Wow. What kind of problems were happening that they needed to put that out there? Um, Probably people selling used mattresses as new. Oh, yeah, gross. Yep, disgusting. Although I think on Craigslist there are many mattresses. Used mattresses. But if you just go to Casper.com. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Brand new mattress. Thank you. You're welcome. Jenny Lynn says, when I hear Christmas music, I want to hum along with parts of instruments, with parts of instrument I played in high school. Hmm. So I'm wondering what she played. It'd be interesting if like, she played the sleigh bell. <laughs> just just played the sleigh bell. <laughs> she was very in, in, in high demand during the Christmas exactly. season. Um, let's see. Do I do that? Uh, in eighth grade, I was in the handbell choir, but I don't find myself playing That's a thing? C. Yeah, at my school it was. And everyone has a handbell? Uh, you had to audition. Whoa. But yeah, there were, I don't know how many of us there were, but we each had a handbell and each handbell is one note and there's a special way you, like, you can't just knock it down like a bell. You like, I'm making a motion that I don't know how to describe. You kind of like just push. It's like you're clinking glass, like you're che- doing cheers with someone. There's a very special motion and we all had to wear these white cotton gloves and uh, I got to conduct one of the songs and I remember I went up to the, it was the recital and I went up to the we did a bunch of recitals. We we toured essentially. We, we even played a senior citizen center. <laughs> oh um, but I went up to the teacher right before because all of a sudden I had this question, and she was like, "Get back over there!" She's in the in in a more vicious way than I said. And for years afterwards, I would think about it and I would cringe and feel terrible. It was like Whoa. it was so. It's like we were twelve. Yeah, chill out. Who cares? This is not. We're not the Philharmonic. Also, you're like 12, like wearing white 
yeah. gloves clinking bells with each right. other. Like, who cares? You're already crushing it. Thank Let you. Let these children be. Thank you. Tara McLeod Stephen says, it could be McLeod, I don't know. So grossed out by that little bit of room temperature coffee left in my mug, even though I love iced coffee, hashtag disgusting. I am not, even when, you're not going to relate to this. Clearly, I have nothing to contribute. No, I know. Uh, But even when it begins to separate in the mug, which part of me looks at it and is like, that does look gross. I'm still okay with it. I will still drink it. That's how Mm -hmm. much I like coffee. Yeah, I'm I'm not grossed out by it. I'm a little bummed out. I don't like when my coffee gets cold, (laughs) but I'll still drink it. Do you drink tea? Any sort of hot beverage going on? I I drink a lot of tea, but it's all herbal. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't do caffeine. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, is this because it affects you too much or you don't like it or? Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, when I was in high school, my first job was as a barista Mm. and I opened the store, uh, the, the like cafe, whatever. What cafe was it? What I know. It was called New World Coffee in Park Slope. It was like a, it was a little chain Mm -hmm. that then went under, I think. And I had to wake up really early. And so one morning I drank like three shots of espresso and I was like a little thing. And then, and then someone came in and ordered a tall iced cappuccino, which was like another three shots of espresso and then couldn't pay for it. So I drank that and then I just puked everywhere. And oh it's my one goodness. of those things. It's like the first time you like puke from like liquor, like whatever that liquor is, like right. the taste of it stays with you. So I've just avoided it. But I think when you don't drink caffeine, then when you do, it's like, right. It really tweak out. Yeah. Trevor D says, I have never in my life properly disposed of a battery. I don't mm-hmm. think I have either. What I'm are you supposed unclear. to do? It's recyclable. I, th- no? I think you're not. I think you're supposed to take them to a special battery disposery, which is not a word. <laughs> Disposal <laughs> Dis- dispensary. I don't know. Um, yeah, you can take them to hardware stores and yeah. I think Target libraries. That's where I drop mine off because I'm a geek. Interesting. Seriously? They a, yeah, they have a little bucket inside the front door of most libraries in LA and you can put your batteries there. Wow. Okay, good. Now I know. You can't just throw them in your trash like I do and hope for the best. <laughs> you could. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible idea, but you could do it. See, so I mentioned that I'm, I'm trying to get pregnant and I'm doing IVF, which wow. involves a lot of uh, injections. Mm-hmm. And the first time you pick up all your stuff, they give you this list of places that you can drop off your all your biohazard materials oh which i've lost <laughs> and also since it's since i don't even do this with batteries uh the idea of making an extra trip to dump out all this stuff just i just don't want to yeah. so instead i have this biohazard bin just filled with sur- oh, like God. it's been there for months now oh no some i don't know what i'm gonna do with it just save it take it to the library it. yeah <laughs> i should yeah i'll go to uh i'll go to an uh, an Indian casino. There's always a a needle dis- needle disposal thing in the bathroom there. Really? This is true. I realize that it's, it sounds like a very problematic statement what I'm saying, and I kind of wish I hadn't gone there. But I know that I went to I don't know if it was Pachanga. I don't know where it was. Um, Morongo. Yeah, one of those, like in the in the uh, Palm Springs area mm-hmm. in India, perhaps, and they had. Uh, needle drop boxes and all the bathrooms. Wow. Really? That's intense. You have to make Hence a lot I've of trips decided to casinos. They're, yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. N- not just that one. That's I'm very re- uncomfortable right now. <laughs> now you've got two reasons to go to casinos. The cheap shrimp cocktail <laughs> and then dis- disposing of your medical waste. Yeah, because yeah. if there's something I love in the desert, it's shrimp. <laughs> yeah, that's the place to get it. 
Oh, Damien Cordova again says, I eat the whole banana, even the bottom. Not the peel. No, I think he means that like that part with like, the brown weird nub. thing in it. The yeah. nub. The nubbin. Yeah. I eat the nubbin when I'm hungry. Yeah, I would. I would. I don't eat a lot of bananas. Jeff? There's no shame in the nub, mm-hmm. but I have been eating a lot of bananas lately and enjoying them. Yeah, they're delicious. Yeah. Lisa Lair and this is the last one. Lisa Lairney says, I absolutely love to adjust podcast speed to half and crack up at how wasted everyone sounds. Try it so funny. <laughs> no, I don't do that, but I could imagine it would sound funny, but I feel like it's a kind of humor that wouldn't last that long. Although I remember I went through a phase when I was a kid of watching the TV with it muted. And for some reason I thought it was just hilarious to watch people gesticulating with, with no sound huh. coming out. I don't think I would find it funny now. No. I find it frustrating. No, that's like a bored kid thing to do. Yes. <laughs> I was one. <laughs> yeah. I once lis- was listening to a podcast and didn't realize it was at like double speed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is the weirdest podcast. <laughs> and then halfway through, I saw that and I was like, wait. Yes. It is. It's occasionally people will write in and be like, help, your podcast is going so fast. Which I-, yeah. I don't mean going so fast like they need more of it. Although I think they do. <laughs> but I mean, they're like, everyone sounds like a chipmunk. Like, did you accidentally hit the two X? Yeah. I think you did. Um, so we Lister Jones. It was delightful having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for Thank having Thank you so me. much. You guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, perhaps enough tampons or toilet paper, <laughs> some holiday <laughs> gifts, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it helps out the show. So thank you everyone for Amazon support. Thank you for PayPal support. PayPal links on the website. Um, we have t-shirts available. Click on the t-shirt on the website, alisonrosen.com. We have ringtones available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. And also, touch the tushy, touch, touch the tushy, tushy, touch. You can get these on iTunes if you search Hey, go fuck yourself or touch the tushy on your iPhone in the iTunes store. Let's say you're not an iTunes person. That's okay. You can also get them at gumroad.com slash Allison Rosen. G U M R O A D.com slash Allison Rosen. Also, some other stuff available on Gumroad. Um, and and um if you like what you're hearing which you did until i said and twice <laughs> subscribe itunes.com slash allison rosen follow me on twitter at allison rosen follow show's twitter feed at ariynbf email us ariynbf show at gmail.com jeff where should we go for you you can you can find me on social media at Colonel Jeff Fox, and you can also find me at Oinkster after the show eating by myself. But I'm not sad, Zoe. Don't worry about me. I'm just having a little Jeff time. All right. <laughs> a little Jeff time. And Zoe, tell everyone where they can go to find you and consumed and anything that you would like to plug. Uh, consumed, you can go to our website, consumedthemovie.com. And if you click on see the film, you can see if the film is playing in your area and also see the trailer and learn more about it. I'm at Zoe Lister Jones on Instagram and Twitter. And also check out my new show, Life in Pieces, on CBS Thursday nights at 830 after the Big Bang Theory. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time. 